Welcome to the show where we unearth new ways of looking at ever-evolving life around the world, seen from a number of different industries, cultures, and backgrounds. But there's one thing that unites everyone I speak to. They all want to do their part to make the world better in their own unique ways. It's a uniting passion. Whether they're from the commercial world, third sector, or public sector, from the global north or the global south, my name is Philippa White, and welcome to Thai Unearthed. Hello, and welcome to episode 48 of Thai Unearthed. I'm a great believer that to profoundly change the world, we need to connect with our emerging self. Where we were is different to where we are going, and everyone has the power to take us to the future. The key is unlocking that potential, which is why I'm so excited to talk with Jim Carroll. Today, we'll be talking about the power of discovering the amplified self. Jim is a long-serving brand and communication strategist. I met Jim when we both worked at the London-based communications agency, BBH, where he worked as a planner for 24 years and for a long time ran the strategy function. He was also UK chairman from 2004 to 2015, and it was then that we worked closely together as he became my main point of contact when BBH became a client of Ties. Jim has received a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Account Planning Group, and he now independently consults clients around brand strategy. He's also now a mentor and advisor for Ty, and I feel extremely lucky to receive his pearls of wisdom. Today, we'll be talking about the importance of finding your purpose and what that looks like. Jim tells stories about the power of diversity and what modern leadership is for a modern world. This one is one of my favorite episodes. There's so much here and it's hard not to get incredibly inspired by Jim. So sit back and relax or throw on those running shoes. And here's Jim. Hello, Jim. It's so wonderful to have you with us today. Thank you for joining us. It's a delight to be talking to you, Philip. Thanks, Jim. Tell us, where are you sitting right now? Where are you? Uh, I'm in Islington, in London, in my home. Um, Lots of art books in the background. I can see there are. There's one, two, three, four, five. Yeah, there's about six shelves of a whole (laughs) wall of books, which just gives you a little bit of an insight into, into Jim. So, yes, tell us a little bit about you. I was born in Essex, Romford in Essex, which is a suburb of London. I still see myself as a suburban person, I think. I was part of a big Catholic family, probably at school. I was a bit of a nerd, but I was a nerd who liked soul music. So I think um, (laughs) there may be, all of us have contrasting elements to our character. And and I think with me, it's uh, the serious and the frivolous uh, go go hand in hand. I... um, I wanted to say a sort of a story of my youth that somehow had some impact on me as I grew older. And um, when I was quite young, I I curled my hair. And um, my mother was very concerned that uh, I was developing a bald patch. And so she took me to the barbers in Hornchurch next to the, the bus garage and, um, and insisted that I had a crew cut, which is a sort of like a US Army kind of very... <laughs> close shave thing and um, I wasn't entirely enthusiastic about this but there wasn't any choice Um, but it was all to deter me from curling my hair and um, and of course I went into school and this was the early 70s and I went into my school and everyone had long lustrous locks and I had this very sort of uh, tight cut 
And um, I wanted to have long, lustrous locks. Uh, and and I, I yearned to belong, but I couldn't. And in some ways, I, I think um, my life has been a long series of incidents like that where I have learned to belong and yet I couldn't. I felt somehow an outsider. Uh, now, the, the reason I use that as an illustration is um, I subsequently became a strategist, a planner yeah. uh, in advertising. And I ended up thinking that being an outsider who wants to belong is a good definition of what planners are. The outsiderdom gives us an objectivity, so we look at the world from a distance, but the yearning to belong gives us an empathy because we want to feel what others feel. So that's it. I grew up in Essex. I, I went to study classics at um, Oxford University, Latin, Greek, ancient history. Wow. And yet when I looked for a job, I wanted something that gave me this combination of the serious and the frivolous. And that's what took me to advertising. Where did you work first? Obviously, we've been at BBH, but were you at BBH ever since the beginning? No, I, I tried to get into advertising immediately after college, but couldn't. And I was directed towards market research. I worked for a company called Qualitative Market Research called the Strategic Research Group. I did focus groups up and down the country into baked beans, boilers, and, um, and, and anything that you could get us mentioned. And it was a great grounding, actually, because it's all about uh, listening to ordinary people, hearing how they feel about the world and about the sector and about the brand. And so yeah, and then after uh, that, you went to BBH? No, then I worked for a small agency called Modell Wilmot Pringle that inducted me in the uh, in the very different culture of advertising. And then from there, in uh, 1990, I joined BBA. Wow. And I was there for the next 25 years. Yeah, absolutely. So perhaps you can tell us about your time at BBH and some learnings that you can share with our listeners, just for our listeners. I mean, I, I mentioned this in the introduction, but I met Jim at BBH and he has been so involved with Ty as an advisor, but even before that, as a client, uh, we worked very, very closely while Ty was working um, with BBH when, when Jim was there. And I have had numerous conversations with Jim over the years. And the stories, uh, even just seeing you stand up on the stage when I was working at BBH and you telling your stories, it's just phenomenal. Well, BBH uh, was an exceptional agency. I was very fortunate to work there. We both were, I guess. And um, I think it was different because it was serious about its business. And I think there was a culture in the broader community of what you might call seats of, seats of the pants development of ideas and, and, and creativity, whereas BBH had a sort of seriousness about it. It was obsessed with excellence and integrity, uh, maybe at a time that people didn't use that word, those words. It was led by three inspiring founders, but very different personalities. And I think its strength was in that difference. It was characterized by a kind of restlessness. It was never, it sort of, it had a paranoia about complacency. It was always worried about what if it all goes wrong. Uh, Nigel Bogle, one of the founders, used to say, we're three phone calls away from disaster. Yeah. And, um, and I always rather like that. It said, we will not rest on our laurels. Uh, you know, if we got three phone calls that, from our biggest clients, uh, then that the game could be up. It was an agency that was serious about culture and values. And I think it, it had a series of principles that it drove into the business so that everyone that worked there, however diverse they were as individuals, 
they bought into a philosophy, you know, and, and, you know, we were taught all roads lead to the work. Whenever you've got a difficult decision, work out what's best for the work and that will resolve that conundrum. We were taught when, when the world zigzag, which was our slogan, so to speak. and The black and sheep. The black sheep. It was all about being the black sheep. Be, be different. Be different. We're selling difference. Subsequently, it coined the, the phrase, we believe in the power of difference to make a difference. And so it talked about how if difference is our end product, then shouldn't we be using that to make a difference beyond our clients into the communities that we serve? You know, John Bartle used to talk about the opposite of creativity is cynicism. And I've always found that a, a healthy watch out because intelligent people tend to be the most cynical. And it always tried to run at the future. It always believed we must embrace progress. You know, John Hegarty, the creative director, used to say, look, do interesting things and interesting things happen to you. And yeah. that's a very refreshing way to think about change and innovation and difference is things happen when you do interesting things. Totally. I, also have, I have something I've prepared here, which is, one new year, Nigel stood in front of the company and said, this is the objective for this year. And he held up, he put up a chart. There's, there's the chart. Yes. And the chart just said, we will be better than everyone else and we will be more different. And that was uh, an example of the, the clarity and quality focus that, that the agency had. What John's philosophy is great for is... Um, so often when we address change, we think we need to be super rational because change is important, change is big, change is difficult. And so we sit there and we get a pen and paper and we do a sort of serious pros and cons and analysis, etc. But I think John always wants you to understand that big decisions should be about the head and the heart. Yes. We need to open ourselves up when we're making big decisions to what our gut is saying, what our heart is saying, what our feelings are telling us to do. And don't just be serious and disciplined and rational, be both. And I think the interesting things doctrine is all about opening things up to how you feel about your work and about life rather than just what the pros and cons suggest to you. You know, and I just, even good at be good and nice, just thinking of the BBA, you know, how, how many companies then, I mean, now maybe there's a few more, but even still to get hired at BBH when they're interviewing you, they want to make sure that you are good and you're nice. Yeah. And I just think that that was so before it's time when, I mean, I got a job at BBH in 2003, I think, you know, that purpose, there were a lot of the, uh, yeah, the ways that businesses are now realizing that they need to think now. I feel like BBH was there a long time ago. Yes, it's the old, I mean, the great management theorist, uh, Peter Drucker said, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Yeah. And I think, I think BBH was serious about culture. The nice element of good and nice was if someone's not nice, however good they are, they're a kind of cancer in the culture. They're eating away at the everyday tissue of the business. So you need nice people as well as good people. I mean, and, and I think the reductive logic of that is very typical of BBH to reduce it to those two. <laughs> <words>. Yeah. <laughs> I'd love to just talk about purpose. We mentioned it just now, but I've heard you quote Oscar Wilde, be yourself 
everyone else is taken. And I love that. I love that for so many reasons. And I just wonder if you can talk to us about why is finding your purpose so important? Yeah. And, um, you know, there's a health warning around the word purpose because people can get incredibly sort of sanctimonious around the whole uh, issue. But fundamentally, we all need to be clear about purpose because it's, it's really just about why. Why am I doing this? Why am I coming into work? And I guess when you're younger, the answer to why can be as simple as I've got to pay the rent, I've got to pay the mortgage, I've got to feed the family. And that's completely legitimate. But I think sometimes you, you want to go deeper with the why. And it may be my why is because I just love what we manufacture. I love what we make. I love the service that we give. I love my colleagues, um, but sometimes it goes deeper still. It goes into the impact that your world, uh, that your work can have on the world. And I think the reason purpose seems such a current thing is that in a period of change, in, 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 in periods of turbulence like we're going through now, the need, the desire to have a fixed point, to have a, a North Star uh, is greater than ever. If you watch ballet, you'll know that in there's a famous sequence in Act 3 of Swan Lake where the black swan does 32 fouette turns and she spins on the spot, just like a human gyroscope. <laughs> and it's actually, for the common person looking at that, often the, the, the question that suggests itself is, why doesn't the ballerina fall down? Because they're spinning 32 times on the spot, rapid motion. And um, why doesn't the ballerina get dizzy? And um, if you talk to a ballet dancer, they'll say, well, we do a thing called spotting where we fix on a point in the auditorium. And as we turn, as long as we can, we keep our eye fixed on that point. And then at the very last moment, we whip the head round and look again at that spot. And that's how you stop being dizzy, by having your eye on a fixed point. And I've always found that quite helpful because we are living through times of transformational change and in many ways we celebrate that change but it is challenging to the individual and to the company to be living through change and you need clarity of why we are here what are we doing this for what am i doing this for in order to navigate that change with any uh, confidence about Oscar Wilde. <laughs> well one yeah and I mean, it's interesting because just at the end of what you've said, obviously, we're talking about why companies need to be very clear on their purpose so that people obviously know why they want to work there and why, you know, what is that North Star? What is that, that point? But you did tell me a story recently, actually, which really resonated with me. I remember you talking about your performance appraisal. You know, we, we had a good appraisal system, you know, 360 degree, you know, they asked people above and below and either side of you what, what how you were doing, how you'd done in the year. And every year I would troop in to see my boss, uh, the excellent uh, Nick Kendall, and, and I, he, he would go through my appraisal and it would be, here's some good stuff. You've done really well on this, this and this. And here are some things to work on. And I mean, I don't know if other people are like this, but I tended to skim over the positives because I was really fascinated by, okay, so what have I got to work on? Who said this? <laughs> and, um, and, you know, for me, it might be I wasn't as good on demonstrating campaign effectiveness. Maybe I wasn't as good on, you know, my Harvard graphics. Maybe my relationship skills in meetings were constrained. And uh, I'd walk out of that meeting and I'd go, right, 
I'm going to I'm going to really work hard on those three things, and I'm going to spend the rest of this year focusing on uh, my effectiveness, my relationship skills, my Harvard graphics, and I would work hard and I would do all that. And then a year later, I'd go in and see Nick Kendall, and he'd say, "Here's some good <laughs> and here are some things you need to work on: your effectiveness, your relationship skills." And I had the same appraisal for. I don't know, 15 years. <laughs> it, it was just uh, like a carbon copy. At some point in the middle of my career, I thought, you know what? I'm just going to stop trying to eliminate the negatives or address the negatives. I'm going to accentuate the positives. And I spent more time thinking about what I was good at and amplifying those strengths uh, rather than addressing my shortcomings. And I learned that in a successful, well-constructed business, you can be surrounded by people that do the things you can't do. And that your value to the business is to excel at one or two things. And I think that for me, that was quite a, I mean, that was quite a Damascene conversion. Uh, I, I really had to, had to understand, focus on the positives and really get. Now, that's easier said than done because um, some of us don't know what we're great at. And, and, and it takes a certain amount of self-reflection to work out, well, what is the thing that I can uniquely do? What is the area where I most add value? I once did this exercise. I was asked by the company CEO, Ben Fennell, to come up with a, a, a point of view about leadership. And I thought, well, I don't know if I have a point of view about leadership. So I, I think I'll, like a good strategist, I'll do a little bit of research. And I, I reviewed, I've worked with many great leaders, uh, client side, agency side. I reviewed all the interesting and compelling leaders that I'd worked with. And, I, and I'll, I'll do a little analysis. And I, I came up with, well, one leader was extremely visionary, articulate, painting a picture of the future. Another leader was competitive, driven, incremental improvements. Another was the great motivator. She just made people feel brilliant whenever you were in the room with her. Another was a kind of puppet master. She managed the connections with client and agency so that everything happened in the right way. Another was the great pragmatist, the, the great problem solver. And I went through a whole load of these leaders. And, and what I found was they each had quite different skills. Now, you could respond to this analysis by saying, okay, the key to great leadership is to have vision, to be competitive, to be motivational, to have relationship skills, to be a great problem solver, et cetera, et cetera. But none of the individuals that I so admired had all of those skills. What they had was one of those skills to the nth degree. And more than that, what they had established was that there was something about them that made them good at that thing. They were, in, in current parlance, completely authentic, but they'd found a larger stage and a louder voice with which, with, with which to articulate what they were good at. And so when I went back to Ben, I said that I think leadership is about the amplified self. Yeah, beautiful. It's about isolating your strengths and turning those strengths up to 11. And that's not easy, but it is comprehensible. And many people go the wrong route on leadership. They try to be the leader that they most admire. They try to be all of the leaders that there have ever been that are great. They will always fail if that's your objective. 
And that's where the Oscar Wilde yeah. comes from. Be yourself, everyone else is already taken. The key to great leadership is understanding what you bring and amplifying that and bringing it to bear in a bigger, bolder way. It's fascinating because that actually goes really nicely into leadership. And you talk about me and we, but also modern leadership for a modern world. And yeah. reminds me a bit of a, an article that I was asked to write about command and control style leadership and why or how has the pandemic moved us even further away from that? Mm. And I just wonder, perhaps you can touch on, on that. Well, I think we are living with the legacy of the industrial age, even though we are living in the technology age. And uh, I think a leadership style developed in the industrial age, which was very top-down and pyramidal and monolithic, I'd say, and didactic and all those things. Uh, and, and maybe that was the right leadership style for factories and for you know, where you're just producing many, many things that are similar over and over again. As we le live in a more fluid, more technological world, more interconnected world, increasingly the kind of leadership style you want is different. And, you know, I would argue that the best modern leaders are, they're not mechanics, they're gardeners. Yeah, lovely. And, you know, mechanics look at the company, look at the business like a circuit diagram, and they twiddle the knobs and they move the cogs around and they've got flow charts and they've got organisational things and they are, if you like, international business machines. <laughs> but if you think of a gardener, a gardener celebrates the diverse beauty of the plants and the flowers. It nurtures, the gardener encourages, recognises strengths and weaknesses in very different crops. And also it recognises that it's not about the gardener, it's ultimately about the garden. I just feel that in a much more fluid, changing, interdependent world, we need gardeners, not mechanics. And the me-we thing derives from a Muhammad Ali incident um, in the 70s when he was invited to do a talk to Harvard students. He was doing the address and he, he was quite known, Ali, as well as being a preeminent boxer uh, for writing little poems. And uh, one of the, the graduates in the audience shouted, give us a poem, Muhammad, give us a poem. And he paused for a moment. He reflected and then he looked out on the audience and said, me, we. And this poem is the shortest poem in the English language. Um, but it also, I think it's also quite profound because it says to me, the two biggest questions in life are, who am I and who are we? And how do these things relate to each other? And I think that in your career, in your life, in your workplace, the answers to these questions change over time. And working out who you are, but also who we are. I mean, sometimes I spend, maybe we all spend too much time talking about who am I, but who are we? What are our values? What is our cohort? How are we different to the previous generation? What do we stand for? Where are we going to make a stand? And generations change. What, what your generation will bring to the party is going to be different from mine. And answering not just the first question, who am I, but also who are we, I think is critical importance to, 
success and happiness. Yeah. And I think, you know, this brings me, you know, with Ty, we talk about the importance of competencies. We should always have been empathetic and flexible and culturally intelligent and embrace diversity, be comfortable in uncomfortable situations. It always should have been like that, but it's more important now, I would say, than ever living in such a volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous world. And the importance of taking people out of their comfort zones and being forced to deal with situations that really kind of challenge them, but force them to have to think on the fly and work with people who are very different to them is obviously really important. And it's just interesting hearing you talk because Jim has a blog. It's called Jim Carroll's blog. It's absolutely fantastic. And I'll include it in the blurb. But you wrote recently about, you know, the importance of doubt. And I just wonder if you can touch a little bit on, on that. Yes. I knew a man once who didn't blink. And he was a client of mine. Uh, we'd sort of sit in meetings together and we'd be talking about the issue in hand. But I found myself obsessing about this guy not blinking. And I'd stare at him through the meeting and he just wasn't blinking. He was sort of like almost like an android or something. And I thought, well, what is blinking? What does it mean? What does his absence mean? I, I mean, I, I don't know if this is true, but I developed the point of view that blinking is an expression of thought, of doubt, of reflection. And the Achilles heel of this very intelligent man was he had absolute certainty that he was right. Now, in some instances, maybe more often than not, he was right, but he never doubted it. He never doubted that he was right. Now, I don't think that's healthy. And I think there's a risk in all of us that we start off perhaps lacking confidence when we're young. And as we gain experience and expertise, we develop fixed points of view, perspectives, we become more confident and our outlook, if you like, calcifies. I don't know if you've seen the the brilliant Henry Fonda movie, uh, 12 Angry Men, about the jury system. And often when they analyse that film, they talk about it's actually a reflection on that brilliant legal phrase, reasonable doubt. What is reasonable doubt? But the flip of reasonable, reasonable doubt is unreasonable certainty. Total certainty is unreasonable. And I think all of us in our careers, as we progress, we need to find ways of challenging our calcifying convictions, if you like. We need to upset the apple cart. We need to have discomfort introduced. You know, I always like there's a Nick Cave quote that says, I'm not interested in that which I fully understand. And that means as an artist, he is chasing things that are new to him, that are not fixed and solid and robust and sound. They're they're things that are grey. I think we need that in our lives. We need, particularly as we get older, there's a brilliant sketch by the, uh, the Spanish artist Goya that he painted right at the end of his life. The sketch, it's a sketch of a really old man with a long beard. And, uh, A lot of people uh, assessing this sketch say, I think that's the way of painting himself. It's right at the end of his life. And he'd had a hard life. He'd witnessed the barbarity of the Peninsular War. Uh, He'd gone deaf. He'd sort of had to move to France, leaving his beloved homeland, etc., etc. And he draws this little sketch of an old man with a beard, looking quite fragile. And at the top, he's just written, Aon Apprendo, still learning. Mm, And I think that's, that's wisdom. And that's hard because as you get older, as you get expert, 
you think you've learned what needs to be done. And, uh, and I think what Thai is brilliant for is for shaking us out of that. And, and that's what I've always admired about what you do, Philippa, is that however good you are, you are going to be challenged. You are going to be looking at something that you've not experienced before. You're going to be questioned about some of your own convictions. We all are pretty good at running trains along railway tracks. And to many, in many respects, that's what jobs are. You just run a train along a track because you know that track is going to the destination that it always has. Well, sometimes we need to learn how to lay railway, and that is hard. And that's what true leaders can do, and that's where you need to test yourself is, I know I can run a train on a track, but can I put a new railway down? God, that's really beautiful. Yeah, that's really great. And that, that is, we just actually finished a fantastic um, Thai Accelerator project with a group of phenomenal people. We had uh, Chief Strategy Officer Torben from Hamburg. We had the global head of digital for Oatly named Sarah, and she's in Amsterdam. We had the co-CEO of the biggest media agency in um, Australia, um, Laura, and she's based in Sydney. And then we had Stuart, who, or Sean, sorry, who is Brisbane, and he is the head of marketing and operations for Suncor. So we had this incredible, you know, super senior um, running the show, you know, in their various departments or companies. And they were faced with this challenge. The MAR Fund is this fund that looks after the Mesoamerican reef system in, it covers four, I think it's Guatemala, Honduras, Belize, and Mexico, perhaps. Anyway, it's four countries. And Maria, you know, she's the executive director of this organization, 16 years, you know, marine biologist working, constantly talking to the World Bank and the UN and getting funds and sort of just Mm. incredibly, you know, just high level stuff and just incredibly knowledgeable. And I pulled, you know, I put this team together with Maria and, you know, Maria is extraordinary, but she's not a communicator. As it like she doesn't understand that much about communication. She's all about policy and 100 page documents to the World Bank to get funding. But when it comes to communicating sort of an idea or what something could look like, I mean, she would say, I, I struggle with that. Oh, yeah, there's a team of people in our sort of kickoff meeting. And she's explaining sort of what she wants, but it's not totally clear. And to be honest, she knows roughly what needs to happen, kind of, but not really. And it's an idea, but we think it could happen, could work. And you've got this team of people having to get their heads around something that doesn't even exist, that they need to kind of create terms that they've never had to understand before. And they've got six weeks in go. (laughs) It was just extraordinary to see this team because, you know, we had some intense meetings. Torben, who's the chief strategy officer, he's, he's like, maybe it's a bit weird that I'm saying this I don't know but I think we need to talk to some locals I think I think like I'm pretty sure we need to talk to some locals about this and I'm, you know I was like yeah yeah okay that's probably a good idea and then obviously that turns out to be kind of the answer right and just having to navigate a team of individuals it was just it was phenomenal and we had our wrap-up meeting just um, on Friday of last week and again the team just saying you know it's just it is so important for us to 
meet locals, to step out of that, our silos, but I think also just that routine of life and also just yeah. force us ourselves to just do things differently because they, as people who are running companies, you know, Laura, who's running her agency, she, you know, she says, I, I need to figure out different ways of doing things, different ways of working with the people with, yes. with, with our employees. I need to find out different ways of approaching challenges, how we can use our knowledge and our skills to be able to make change. What does that even look like in today's world? How, you know, what are the big issues that we're dealing with? So it was just, it's so exciting because every time I finish a project, I know what my, my North Star is. You know, it is about doing, you know, doing interesting things and interesting things will happen to you. And, but it's just absolutely fantastic to then see that play out. So, yeah, thank you for saying that. It changes interesting because we spend so much time talking about changing categories and changing business and disrupting sectors and things like that. But maybe we don't ask, well, how do I change my own life? How do I change and disrupt my own uh, habits and convictions? You know, and um, having a little bit of change in your life and career is as important as having change in society and in yeah. corporate. Couldn't agree more. Jim, is there anything that I haven't asked you that you'd like to tell our listeners? When I was a kid, I mean, I was into soul music, but I also liked punk music in my age. And um, there was a famous illustration in a uh, in a punk magazine, one of the fanzines. It was just a very simple graphic. It taught what the three chords A, E and G were. It's had the fingerings for A, E and G. And the graphic said, this is a chord, A. This is another, E. This is a third, G. Now form a band. And that said perfectly what punk music was all about. Punk came along in the midst of the 70s when music had been glorifying expertise and study and learning the guitar, you know, to the nth degree. And we worshipped all these great magicians of music, etc., etc. And punk said, stop worshipping these other people. You can do it yourself. Here are three chords. That's all you need. Form a band. And, Love it. Love and it. that instinct, if you feel you want to do something, if you admire someone else that is doing something, you can just do it. You can do it. You just need A, E, G, form a band. And, you know, there's the, the great choreographer, Balanchine. He once said, what are you waiting for? What are you saving yourself for? Now is all there is. And that, that encouragement, there, there's nothing else to wait for. Now is all that we live in, uh, yeah. I, I think is, is, is inspiring. We all need, I mean, I need it more than most, just geeing up to say, if you want to do it, do it and do yeah. it now. And you can do it. I think that's the other thing. Imposter syndrome is such a crazy thing. When I listen to some extraordinary people who have extraordinary will and desire, but they have that feeling of, yeah, but I, you know, I don't think I could, or I don't think I'm up for that. It's like, yes, you can. And I yeah. think that's a big part of what we're trying to do with Ty as well. I think everything you've said is just wonderful. You know, everyone has it within them. Now is what we've got um, and everyone can. And actually just form a band, form other like-minded souls to kind of help you if you don't want to do it on your own. <laughs> Jim, thank you so much for joining us. It's always such a pleasure. I adore your mind. I could listen to you forever. Thank you. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye. Hey, everyone. This is Philippa again. I hope you enjoyed listening. Now, this is your chance to get involved with Thai. If you work in the commercial world, whatever your profession, your position, or your experience, then Thai could be for you. You may have been in business for decades, but have always felt there's another way. Or you may just have a few years experience, but want to do more. Equally, 
If you want to create game-changing employees and see your company impact the world, we've got you covered. Tie has never been more necessary than right now, and you can be a part of it. Reach out to me at philippa at theinternationalexchange.co.uk and I can tell you more. Or join the Tie Accelerator info session for more information. Apply.tieaccelerator.com. Better leaders, better companies, better world. I'm your host, Philippa White. This podcast has been co-produced by Berna Vieira and me, music by Berna Vieira, and artwork by Kelps Fahais. I hope we'll meet again soon. <laughs>